winter was here, but we're just getting started here on our Game of Thrones rewatch here on Post Show Recaps. And now, here are the two guys who are go- would rather have their hands cut out than their tongues. I'm Rob Sestri, and here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? The king of the north! The king of the north! The king of the north! Sorry, I've just been waiting for a long time to belt out the king of the north and not have it be a spoiler. I've been really excited about this. Oh boy, Josh, one season down in our Game of Thrones rewatch. Wow, 10 episodes in on our Game of Thrones rewatch, 10 weeks down. Uh, exciting stuff, exciting times to be uh, to be a full season into this Game of Thrones rewatch project. I love season one. What a pleasure. What a blast to go back to the days when Ned Stark still had a head, uh, although not in this episode. He's still super, super dead. But hey, we got to see Ned Stark again very quickly. At least you know, his probably, head, right. Yeah. You know, quite likely for the last time. But yep, that was fun. That was the thing. Okay. So we are going to go through everything first in the spoiler free portion of the show, just to do a little reset also for you people who may have forgotten what happened in the Game of Thrones season one finale. And then we'll talk about all of the ramifications of this first Game of Thrones finale here today as we discuss Fire and Blood, the final episode of season one airing back on June 19th, 2011, of course, uh, to make sure you don't miss any of of our rewatching, you can subscribe to our podcast at postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes, or of course, you can find the podcast every week at postshowrecaps.com or at THR.com, where Josh Wiggler is posting each of these podcasts yes. there. Yes, it's a it's a fabulous team up. It's a great, great joining of our houses. House Hollywood Reporter and House Poster Recaps. We'll work on the names. The names could use some improvement. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of uh, branding uh, could be going on there. All right, so <laughs> Josh, oh my God, dragons are born. Dragons are back. Dragons are back, and we also have Hot Pie, so that's exciting, too. Uh, No, the dragons being back, I think, are the most exciting thing. Of course, this whole season uh, had been, you know, when you're first getting introduced to Game of Thrones, one of the draws is, yeah, it's a fantasy world, and you're hearing about dragons, and there seem to be zombies in the very first scene of the show, so you know it's not just like a straight-down-the-middle, completely realistic, like, medieval type of show, but for the most part it kind of plays that way where really it's a lot about like the political infighting and the violence that occurs from the frailty of man's ego rob uh we don't really think too much about like the fire breathing potential of game of thrones at this point in game of thrones and then suddenly there are three dragons that are now in the mix uh daenerys targaryen is emerging from uh call drogo r.i.p r.i.p call drogo is something we can say now uh we she emerges from his funeral pyre and she is covered in dragons three baby dragons which is a very big deal uh not something we've talked about a ton about on this podcast but dragons don't exist in this world anymore and suddenly now they do now they do and dragons are into the world now for the first time in uh quite some time since the rest of the dragons have died out and that is what we close out season one on a very iconic image of Danny with those dragons surrounding her. 
Yeah, I think one of when you you know when you think about Game of Thrones and you think about the iconic images from this show, I do think that this has to has to make your top ten, baby. Like I feel like this has to be really high up on the list. Um, even saying that out loud, I'm pretty sure that an iconic images uh, article does exist on the Hollywood Reporter that I may have written two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll have to go. I'll have to go and check that out to verify. If not, um, maybe you're seeing a vision of the future. That's not impossible as well. I could be doing the Bran Stark thing. Yeah, you could be seeing an article yet to come. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Or at the very least, I got to update the old one. I know it's been since uh, season six. Uh, certainly haven't updated it since then. So I'll, I'll get to work as soon as we're done here, Rob. A man's uh, Game of Thrones, uh, you know, it never it never sleeps. No, it, it turns out. Yeah. From December 30th, 2015. <laughs> yeah, most see? iconic images of Game of yeah. Thrones from wall to wall. Don't, don't look course. at the if, spoiler people. Don't look at this. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. Spoilers for <laughs> show. Spoilers for sure. Yeah. Slide Did one I, of forty three. I had to. I must have gone in chronological order, right? Does that is that what it looks like to you? That's what it looks like. Yeah, it looks yeah, like I, that's... I, I can't imagine I would have ranked this forty three <laughs> things. You know, that seems that's too daunting for me. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> too... <laughs> but of course, it exists. I love that it exists. Oh my god, we're at the point where I've written so much about this show that I can't be sure what's a reality and what's a fiction at this point. Yeah. It's pretty, okay. pretty pretty great all right so of course that we end up at that point after we see daenerys uh woken up by sir jorah to be told that uh, her baby did not make it and then uh to make things worse also uh Khal drogo he is a shell of himself uh, <laughs> that i do find that the sort of uh lifelike uh uh drogo doll to be amusing in this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder how many. I don't know. That would sell. I feel like the life, uh, the yeah. life, like doll. That would sell pretty well. Uh, yeah, but he likes the warmth. He likes the sun. He likes to just hang out out here. How did they like figure that out? Is what I'd like to know. Uh, and just like, how did they even lug him all the way out there? Whoever has yeah. the job, I think of, that's like, where he was. Yeah, for the weekend yeah. at Drogo's. <laughs> <laughs> we get that Drogo's. <laughs> Whoever is in charge of just like dragging Drogo from like his warm spot to like bedtime. That's a terrible job. That's a horrible job. I feel bad for those guys. But yeah, poor Drogo. If you want to say poor Drogo, I do think that Miri Mazdur, who is uh, really gloating about what she's done here, uh, really proud of herself on this one, where she is telling Danny that, look, you paid for life. He's alive. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't have the rest of the stuff. But at least he's alive. You know, she's gloating and it's it's frustrating and you want to see some sort of vengeance taken out on her, I think, from Daenerys. But she also puts out some decent points about the fact that, hey, the Dothraki are terrible. Uh, they completely ravaged my town. That little boy who I cured of fever three months ago, I saw his head in the street. I saw that guy's head in the street. I was raped three times before you saved me. Uh, maybe the Dothraki kind of have it coming if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to be so bold. So, like, I feel like she presents her case, you know, like it's it's hard to refute that the Dothraki are not the greatest people on the planet when she lays out exactly what's happened here. That being said, it certainly sounds like Miri Mazdur uh, sacrificed Daenerys's baby in order to execute this vengeance plan. And that seems way over the line. Well, way you over know- the line. 
I don't even know if it was completely a vengeance plan, but because she knows that, no, that was going to be the stallion that mounts the world that I actually, you know, needed to do this. It's like one of those things where it's talked about, like, well, if you could stop the baby Hitler from being born, would you do it? Would you kill baby Hitler? And I feel like that that's like uh, a question that people uh, talk about. It's so 2016, 2016, Rob. 2016, sure. <laughs> but this was from 2011. So that, right, that wasn't right, even right. a thing yet. And right, so, right. I mean, I think that in Mary Mazdor's mind, that, that is what she was doing. She's like, hey, this is this guy is going to be a savage that's going to kill way more people. I'm doing a good deed here by taking the stallion that mounts the world out of the equation. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really cool storyline because I think it, it speaks to what's so great about Game of Thrones is, um, you know, not just the clash of kings as uh, as George R. R. Martin writes and as is set up at the end of season one, but also like just the, the clash of ideologies and the clash of perspectives and how everybody sees this world very differently and, you know, very much rooted in how they were born into this world and how they were raised in this world. Tyrion Lannis is not going to see things the same way as Jon Snow necessarily, or a Stark and a Lannister just are not necessarily going to get along because they approach life very differently. And Daenerys Targaryen is going to have her own view of justice, and Miri Mazdur is going to have her own view of justice and her own view of heroism, too. I think that you're probably exactly right that, like, she thinks that she has just done an enormous solid for the world, and maybe that, like, lax attitude that she has when Danny is finally kind of giving her the business stems from the fact where she's like, I, I know what I signed on for. I know that I'm going to get killed for this, but I'm a hero. And I have, you know, I have preemptively, proactively saved the world from a lot of suffering because of what I've done. And I can die peacefully uh, because of that. I just think that's fascinating that you have that that perspective coming from the character who is right at odds with Daenerys, who is so equally sure about her own opposite perspective and seemingly so confident in her own ability to chart a better future for the people that have stayed with her, the people who are still loyal uh, as she is forming her new Kalasar by the end of the episode. And I think that that's just something you see all throughout Game of Thrones and certainly something you see all throughout life, Rob. People come to the table with all sorts of different ideas and sorts of different clashing ideologies and it just so happens that there's dragons and uh, zombies in this version of that tale. Yeah, lots of grayscale area, to be sure, Josh. <laughs> yeah. So- and- one part I really do love, though, from where, you know, they're setting up the whole pyre and they're going to put Mary Mazder in there. And Daenerys is talking about how, like, well, I'm going to really enjoy hearing you scream. And from off camera, Mary Mazder is like, uh, you won't hear me scream. I and know. Yeah. Like, I will. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just love. Yeah. I like sassy Mary Mazder as a character. I'm like, nope, not going to happen. No, not you won't. Scream. No, I'm not going to scream yes you are you're gonna you're gonna do it she'll scream she will scream she will scream she ultimately will scream but i would have liked like (laughs) 10 minutes of elaboration of back and forth between those two and that moment would have been pretty prime yeah pretty good you basically (laughs) want the scene of is it will ferrell in the first austin powers movie where he's like i'm just very badly burned down here (laughs) you shot me you shot me right in the arm why would you (laughs) Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. 
<laughs> All right, so uh, that's where we end up leaving off uh, Daenerys with her baby dragons being born. Lots of and other, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty good hook to leave season one and head into season two. Like as a final image of season one, now you're going back into now you're going into the Game of Thrones off season, thinking like, oh god, when I come back to Game of Thrones, there's dragons on the show. Like that's pretty epic. It's a pretty great hook for the final uh, the final episode of the first season. Yeah, it's just a great season finale because all of the stories like end on a note that's like i can't wait to come back and see what happens next i don't think that this is a spoiler to say not every single finale will end with all of the seasons on such a climactic note for every storyline but they really do a great job here in the end of this and it's like it's perfect that it sort of like coincides with sort of like this perfect adaptation of the first book or near perfect adaptation for somebody who's a super purist but they really do a great job of just getting you ready for the second season. Yeah, totally agreed. I actually do think that that's something that Game of Thrones typically does really well is they they do end their seasons um, in ways where it really does leave you wanting more. And in a lot of in a lot of cases, and certainly in season one, giving you like a really I don't know if I want to say like a clear picture about what's ahead, but at least like a little bit of a roadmap of like you can you can tell which stories are threading together and where certain characters are going. Like now, you know, that Danny's got dragons and her next destination almost doesn't even matter just the fact that she has dragons really ups her significance instantly um you've got a whole army of northerners like pledging their sword to rob stark so you know that the war is on and you're getting stakes of what's involved in the war and who some of those players are uh you're hearing about the baratheon brothers and everything like that so the first season finale really does a great job at setting up the table and i do think that that's something that game of thrones is really good at moving forward okay well you mentioned about that north Northern Army that is pledging allegiance to Rob and we do get that great scene where it's the great John who is signaling that we have a new king in the north. I know. The king in the north! The king in the north! Oh my god. Just a wonderful, wonderful moment in pop culture, uh, let alone on Game of Thrones. It's just an army of like rough, like, you know, super tough, bearded warriors just shouting in these incredible accents, the king of the north, the king of the north, as it's all just blending together into a cacophony of awesomeness. It's splendid. It's really spectacular. Sadly snubbed from the list of most iconic images, though. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> Great John really came around from when yeah. he was like, uh, listen, boy, yeah, <laughs> you don't tell me what to do. I'm running the vanguard. You know, I think that the 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 meat moment, the bloody tough meat, I feel like it was the bloody tough meat cute. You know, I think that that was when he <laughs> fell in love with Rob Stark at that point. And I think that he was willing to just like pledge himself to Rob forevermore. Yeah. And so uh, we see everybody uh, very pumped up and that they are signaling their independence from the crown in King's Landing. Yeah, no, because nobody is willing to follow. No one's going to you know, be OK with with the situation in King's Landing, given everything that's just happened to Ned Stark, of course. And now that you're hearing that Renly Baratheon is like gathering his people together to make a run at the crown and Stannis Baratheon, who we've already heard about, that he was uh, he was King Robert's uh, next of kin, uh, his next youngest brother, the middle child of the Baratheon bros. And he's gearing up for a run at the crown. 
down as well. And like the Northerners have no love for any of these people. So why not just break off? Why not just do our own thing? Why not win our own independence and just let the North be the North? And this is certainly uh, in line with many thousands of years of history of the Starks being the kings in the North. You know, that was a that was the position that they held for the longest time until Aegon Targaryen about 300 years before the events of Game of Thrones shows up in Westeros, unites the realm, quote unquote, unites the realm through sheer force of power. And the Starks relent. Uh, there is a king, I believe his name is Torin Stark, who becomes the king who knelt, who bends the knee to Aegon the Conqueror so that no further blood could be spilled. And all of the northerners who went to fight Aegon the Conqueror, they walk away with their lives intact, but with their pride and honor a little bit dinged up. Uh, because they are no longer a free and independent North. They are now part of the larger seven kingdoms. And so now you're getting this moment where the Northerners are feeling like, you know what? History's pretty messed up right now. Uh, tribal is live, as they say. Uh, so let's probably just go back to the way it was. And, you know, Rob Stark, he is the he is the man of the house of, of House Stark right now. So he's the guy who's going to be, you know, elected king in the north in this very haphazard way that has ties to ancient history. We are also going to see Jon Snow when he gets word of this. Obviously, we see Kat and Rob react to the word that Ned Stark has been killed. Jon Snow wants to leave his post. He wants to abandon the Night's Watch and head down to go and join Rob in uh, fighting this war against the Lannisters. We see uh, Pip and Gren and Sam come and talk Jon back into rejoining his his brothers he's got a new family and he has to return to the wall and we have uh this really rousing moment at the end of the episode where john is asked are you a brother of the night's watch or a bastard boy who wants to play at war and uh, i think this this really gets the blood pumping of john going uh, north of the wall for the first time with the rest of the rangers yeah, no, now he's like, all right. I mean, being a steward was kind of terrible. I had to get ham and beer for Lord Commander Mormont every morning. It was not great, but now we're going north of the wall and now we're getting into some real business. We're getting serious here. Uh, so again, like we were saying earlier, I do think this finale really does a great job of setting up some of the stories that are coming next. And now you can enter season two of Game of Thrones pretty hyped up that the Night's Watch is moving north. They're not going to be just sitting around and waiting for more zombies to come their way. They're going hunting they're going out they're going and they're seeing what's what's what beyond the wall and what's causing all of this this nonsense this undead madness that seems to be creeping towards the wall uh so that's a really cool cool way to leave the night's watch storyline and to to think about what all of these guys can get into in the frozen tundra north of the wall is really great i do have to say in the john snow storyline this week uh what an incredible episode from a man samuel tarley i mean just like really kind of like classic classic Sam of him being like, John, you can't, you can't run away. Don't you know what happens to deserters? And then getting clotheslined by a tree. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. tre- tremendous, tremendous episode for Samuel Tarley. That's the thing. That, that happened to me one time, uh, Josh, as well. You got clotheslined by a tree? <laughs> yes, because that I did not have a lot of experience uh, horseback riding. And the thing is, the horse is like, well, I can fit underneath this. The horse Wait, is but- not thinking of you. <laughs> When was this? When did this happen? <laughs> this is uh, on my horseback riding trip with uh, Rudy and Tina. Ah, 
interesting. Uh, remind me somebody and that everybody I laughed have, and laughed yeah. and laughed. Yeah. Remind me somebody that I have a great quote from Tina Wesson somewhere about your horseback riding trip. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Someone remind me to bust that out at some point. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Not to mix the shows too much right now. <laughs> but they do do a great job here with everybody going north of the wall. And uh, Lord Commander Mormons sets up this. It does not matter who is going to be sitting on the Iron Throne with the White Walkers and the Wildlings coming down from the north. And it really does put things into perspective for John. I think that this is something that the first scene of the whole show really um, maybe it's you forget about it because so much else happens. And it's so much, you know, it's so far afield from what you see in that first scene of the three Rangers going north of the wall and getting murdered, two of them getting murdered. And then one of them coming back south of the wall and getting beheaded by Ned Stark, which is a bad look in retrospect, Uh, you know, beheading this guy who is warning about the fact that there is something terrible happening north of the wall. And then we just kind of get lost in all this political infighting that happens over the course of the rest of the season, um, with the exception of some moments here at the wall where there's definitely something spooky going on. There's something really weird happening. Uh, But I think the fact that it's the very first thing that you ever see in Game of Thrones is this threat beyond the wall should be a great indication that this is a big deal. Something very, very important and probably really, really terrible is happening north of the wall, very far off the radar of just about every other character on the show. Uh, and I think that what Lord Commander Mormont says here about, you know, essentially saying, like, why does that war matter when we've got this other war that we're fighting? And are you going to fight with me or are you going to worry about the, you know, the petty dealings of mortal men, basically? Like, is that what you're going to do? Uh, I think should really be a clue to the audience of what is the biggest priority not to say that like everything that's happening with the rest of our characters on game of thrones isn't a priority and isn't you know profoundly uh, and urgently important for the people who are participating in these storylines but there's also a meta threat at play uh and it seems like Jon snow and his buddies are about to ride right into it And then in King's Landing, Josh, we're going to see Yorin grab Arya Stark. She watched the whole sequence with Ned Stark being beheaded. Uh, Yorin is going to go from calling her boy and and she's like, "Uh, I'm not a boy. And then he's going to cut her hair off. And he is smuggling Arya with a bunch of other prisoners from King's Landing back to the wall. And so that she has to give her a new identity. And that is Ari, Ari, the prisoner boy. Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've got we've got Harry Potter in the mix right now. She is traveling with this group that is bound for the wall. Uh, at least one familiar face uh, that is in the mix here. There is Gendry, the blacksmith, who uh, I like that he wears like a, a dirty survivor buff around his neck. Do mm-hmm. you like that look? I feel like it's a it's a good look for him. It's a good look for Gendry. What happened to Gendry? The blacksmith threw him away. I didn't remember that. Like, he was just like, yeah, get rid of this guy. Like, that seems that seemed uh, like a little bit of a surprise to me. Did the blacksmith suspect that Gendry was in danger? Was that why? Like, uh, Maybe. like get, get basically, like, this is a Nymeria type thing where it's like, get Gendry, get out of here. I hate <laughs> just, you now, Gendry. Go. Except he's throwing go hammers to the wall. Yeah, he's like throwing. You're I a terrible know. blacksmith. Why did you embarrass me in front of Ned Stark? 
pieces of steel at him. I don't know. I feel like it's a very dangerous scenario to to Nymeria Gendry out of the blacksmith shot. I don't know. The the blacksmith master is named Tobo Mott, which is a great Game of Thrones name. Uh, sounds almost more Star Wars to me, but that's yes. neither here nor there. Uh, sounds like a Star Wars bounty hunter. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know why he would be he would be so mad at at Gendry. So a little a little suspect, a little bit suspect. Okay. All right. All elsewhere in King's Landing, also uh, Joffrey has this whole sequence where he gets to be uh, especially horrible to everybody, especially the minstrel who he uh, completely torments and makes him play that whole song, which was, uh, you know, a pretty good uh, song parody, right? I mean, original I composition, w- probably. I don't know that it would have been top five wand off. <laughs> Uh, but I think, you know, it was decent. Marillion is the name of the singer. Let, let us not forget Marillion. Yeah. And then he brings Sansa out to go see Ned Stark's head on a pike. And really just uh, Joffrey at his most terrible. Yeah, Joffrey is terrible. Forces Sansa to look up at her deceased father's head, uh, severed on a pike. Even Septa Mordain is there, which is which is upsetting. I don't think that Sansa was a huge fan but probably not pumped to see her severed head just lining the wall of the Red Keep. No, definitely not. I did like when Joffrey decided that it was time to leave. He just sort of like clocked out. He's like, all right, I'm done here. <laughs> that was a really good impression. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you do a secret great uh, King Joffrey impression? <laughs> Peace out. I'm done. That's it. I'm tired. <laughs> I like it. I think that's really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he does. He, he pieces out after he's being terrible. I mean, this kid loves being king. He's thrilled to be king. He is enjoying this tremendously. Uh, and it is it is a very it is a very bad deal for everybody who has crossed him so far, uh, including the fact that uh, he had this 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 uh, this this songster's tongue removed. He had the bard's tongue removed. He is having Sir Marin Trant smack Sansa in the face. He already killed Ned Stark. That was no good. Like everything that he has done has been awful. And there is this great moment here on the bridge where Sansa looks at him and then looks down at the side of the bridge and sees that it's a small like it's a really it's a big fall. And she walks towards him with purpose. And if not for the hound stopping her. Uh, I don't think that this is much of a spoiler to say, like she could have like, you know, really stopped a lot of really bad stuff from happening. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, really could have, uh, I don't know about ending Game of Thrones in a hurry, but really could have uh, could have prevented some pain, some future pain that is going to be inflicted thanks to this guy being the king. Hey, Josh, do you want to set up the controversy that came out of this episode, which seems <laughs> right. like so such a quaint controversy uh, as we are like uh, six years removed from it? Well, it, it, I think it's I think it's scrubbed from existence, right? I mean, I was watching this episode on HBO Go, and I did not notice the thing. I didn't notice the thing that you're supposed to see in this scene in Game of Thrones. Did you catch it? No, I didn't see it there. No. Yeah. So, so this was a, a, a really kind of wild story. Shortly after the Game of Thrones season one finale, I think it was shortly after the finale. I don't know if it was picked up years later or what. I don't remember exactly how. How it played out other than the what happened was one of the heads that you could see on a pike along the wall here when you're seeing Ned Stark's head and Septimordain's head was the head of 
former United States President George W. Bush, uh, which was a very odd thing. Uh, but I guess it had to do with the fact that there was like a prop George Bush head lying around in the prop room that Game of Thrones had access to, uh, and it, it ended up it ended up on the Red Keep's uh, barrier. Uh, very awkwardly and clearly has since been removed from the history books of Game of Thrones uh, or at least from Game of Thrones proper because I did not see that in the scene. But right. the screenshot exists. You can seek it out. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the news articles about that. They're from June of 2012. So I think that people first uh, came to realize that during the DVD release of season one, getting ready for uh, season two. Yeah, so controversy, uh, not great. I think it was an accident. I don't think that it was uh, an intentional prank. Uh, could be wrong about that. Not really sure. Uh, but there you go. George W. Bush making a Game of Thrones cameo. And uh, no, no longer. The cameo has been removed. From <laughs> right. All right. Josh, anything else you want to touch on? There's still a lot from this episode, but I think that we can hit it in the spoiler section. Anything else notable that you want to get here? No, I think uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the finale generally and what's, you know, really fantastic about it is that everything that is, you know, built up in this episode is something that is going to be answered in season two or beyond. Like, it's really setting you up for exactly where we're going to go next. Like, you know, Tyrion Lannister has been named acting hand of the king on Tywin's behalf. So you have an idea that Tyrion is going to be going to King's Landing next season. That could be exciting. Feels like there's some people in King's Landing that could benefit from some Peter Dinklage interactions. Uh, Khal Drogo is dead. That's sad. But Danny's got dragons and that's neat and awesome and cool. Jon Snow is going to get colder than usual because he is going north of the wall. And I think just overall this episode is exciting and noteworthy in that it's the first full episode that we've arrived at so far where Ned Stark is not alive and Sean Bean is not an active force on Game of Thrones. And guess what? That's Game of Thrones now. So this is like the first real episode of Game of Thrones where that main, main character who we had been tracking through nine episodes of the first season is completely gone. And though uh, the impact of that character's death and what is left behind in the wake of him being pulled from the board is definitely going to be critical in the next uh, wave of Game of Thrones in the future of the show. Uh, he himself will be gone. Uh, so you're really getting a sense of what this show is actually going to look like when you really think about what Game of Thrones is. You think about the era of Game of Thrones from here and beyond, I think. I think that the first nine episodes of the show are awesome and nostalgic and important in many ways. Uh, but I think that they are also, uh, you know, a product of a different era, the Ned Stark era. We are officially out of the Ned Stark era. All right. And with that, let's get into the spoiler era for the first time here in season one uh, before we let you spoiler free people go josh you want to set up what we're going to do in the next episode of this podcast yes absolutely so uh we are you know we're, we're geared up to get right into season two here uh the very next episode of game of thrones episode 11 is called the north remembers we will not be talking about that next week instead we're going to stop down for one last look at season one and everything that came out of this season both on a spoiler level and a spoiler free level and we are going to do that through
through your feedback. So please, we would love your feedback for this episode. Special feedback show looking back at season one uh, for Thanksgiving week. Rob, I'll be thankful for this podcast. All right. So happy, happy Thanksgiving to everyone in the uh, Seven Kingdoms. OK, yeah. Thanksgiving two days, two days earlier uh, is when we will release it. Uh, but yes, yeah, so send us your feedback. We would love that. GOT at postshowrecaps.com is one way to do it. You can go to postshowrecaps.com slash feedback and send us your feedback that way. You can leave us a voicemail. Voicemails could be fun. Postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. Uh, any other ways? I don't know. Raven? Yeah. Tweet, whatever. Okay. We'll check the comments as well on postshowrecaps.com. And with that, let's get into the spoilers. Okay. And now is the part where I reveal that Ned Stark's head grows legs and leaves the bike from the Red Keep and goes on a vengeance tour through all of King's Landing as just a Ned Stark with arms sprouting from his ears and legs from his throat. I don't know. None of that's true. Oh, that's wrong. It's just extra extra warning in case you're still here by accident. In case Leave. You're still here. Go. Spoiler okay. time. Let's do it. And the number seven iconic image is the wildfire at Blackwater. Wow. <laughs> wow. I must have really. Uh, I don't know. This is now now that we've got the iconic images on the radar. Let's see if I left anything out from season two. Any iconic images coming out before the wildfire explosion at Blackfire? I'm a little worried about season <laughs> no, two. <laughs> we skip right yeah. from dragons to uh, Blackwater. No, that's what I'm saying. Let's keep an eye out. Let's see if I missed anything. Let's see if there's anything that really was worth being an iconic image from Game of Thrones between the birth of the dragons and the wildfire explosion at Blackfire. Okay. All right. So, Josh, uh, let's uh, then uh, talk about something that will uh, be a big factor in uh, Game of Thrones season two. I think maybe the, uh, the you know, uh, Smoke Baby, I think maybe the... Uh, it could have been uh, in there. Smoke Monster. Smoke Monster was pretty good. I mean, I, we'll, we'll have to, we'll re-examine the scene. We'll re-examine the scene and see. I mean, iconic image. I guess it is pretty iconic. Yes. Yeah. But on that note, uh, let's talk about Kat Stark and what she has going on in this episode where she goes to see Jamie Lannister and she gets uh, close to the truth about what happened with the very first episode of Game of Thrones and why Jamie pushed Bran Stark out the window. Right. And he owns up to it. You know, he says, I pushed him out the window and she asks him why. And he doesn't answer her. He says, you should get some sleep. It's going to be a long war. And I, I know this isn't like deep cut analysis or insight or anything like that, but it's just like, couldn't you just like have like poked him a little longer just like to get the why? Why did why give up so easily? It just seemed like he might have gone there. He was like, I, feel like eh, he I gone probably there. shouldn't say anything. Jamie was feeling chatty. You know, I think that he was ready to talk. I think that just like, uh, the you know, one more like swift hit with the brick, I think, may have done the trick. Uh, but yeah, so he's owning up to it. And we do have Jamie Lannister on lockdown at this point. Um, and I think it would have been a spoiler to say in the first half of this episode of the podcast uh, that, you know, we're talking about how the finale really sets up where people are going for the next season of the show and what we're going to see from their story arcs next year. And like Jamie's entire story arc in season two is just still being like tied to a pole. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> he's he's going to be tied to a pole all season long until the very end. Uh, 
And that being said, I don't think it's the weakest Jamie Lannister season. So mm-hmm. <laughs> he's still he's still yeah. got to go to Dorne. <laughs> right. But ultimately, it is going to be Kat who is going to be the person to release him. So uh, a lot of, uh, you know, setup coming in that story, which is going to be fun to uh, see that play out next season. So I didn't know. I didn't know before we leave the Starks. I didn't know if we uh, if we should talk about this in the spoiler free or the spoiler filled. So just to be safe, it's in the spoiler filled and we could reveal it in the feedback show if we'd like. But I don't think we're ever going to see the great John again. I think that he's gone after this. I think the actor and the show, as we discussed before, I think that this is the last episode that he appears in. And then he's just basically going to disappear from existence. Oh, man. So I'm glad that we got to like really pat him on the back for King, King in the North. He was it. great. He was great. I mean, they called him the great John for a reason, because he was definitely the, you know, I don't know if he was, is he the best John yes. on Game of Thrones? I don't know. He, they don't call him best John, Rob. <laughs> they don't call him best John, Umber. They call him great John, Because Umber. I'm taking Jon Snow out of the equation, because he's uh, Aegon Targaryen oh, to me. Oh, stop that. No, that's never going to catch fire. No matter what happens, he's never going to be Aegon They don't catch Targaryen. fire. That's the thing that's about right. the Targaryens. That's right. That's right. Uh, John Aaron, I don't think that he's as good as great John, no. Umber. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, you, I would, I would support best John number, but I mean, Jon Snow is so great. I think that he's got to be the best John. I'll yes. rank those two. Best Aegon for sure. I'll, I'll work on that list of the best Johns of Game of Thrones. Hey, slideshow coming soon. <laughs> okay. So uh, up in the North that Winterfell, we get to see a little bit more of Bran that he ends up seeing the three eyed Raven and he tells Osha that it is, uh, leading him to the crypt. That's where Ned's Stark is. And so uh, Osha's a little scared to go down into the Winterfell crypts. And uh, we end up getting a little bit of a backstory. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of statues in the Winterfell. Like we always see like the same like two or three statues in the Winterfell crypts. It's because Starks never die. No, it's a joke. They die very easily and often. Uh, yeah, no, I think that the show just has the budget for the three. I think they just put like the most recent ones right at the front. And then the other yeah. ones, they move them uh, further back and further back. But uh, that's really sad. Anyway, that uh, Osha and Bran get a big scare when we see Shaggy Dog jump out because Rickon is down there. Also, Rickon had a dream that Ned Stark... Uh, was down there in the crypts as well the same dream that bran had this is never explored in uh as far as my recollection goes josh again but does rickon have the green sight here yeah uh i don't know i don't know why the whole rickon thing on game of thrones so odd to me first of all i feel like rickon just looks like a little man doesn't he like he just like looks like a little man walking through the hallway there like he looks like he he looks like elijah wood in the hobbit Yeah. yeah He looks like a hobbit, just like him next to Shaggy Dog. The proportions like and there's just like a I don't know. There's a there's like a seriousness about the way that Art Parkinson carried himself, even as a young child, that he's just like very much like an adult, small adult. Uh, But I I don't know why it doesn't get explored much further on the show. Uh, I think that I think that the truth is, is that probably Art Parkinson as Rick on Stark was never really lighting it up the way that the other Starks did. I think Uh, I think that that 
that's pretty clear. Uh, and I think the show just never really had a ton of interest in exploring the character on the show if he wasn't really popping on the show and there is so much other business that needs to be accomplished in the telling of this story for television. With that being said, it's definitely a thing in the books that uh, it feels like the Starks have like warging potential, uh, that the Stark kids all have you know these odd connections to their dire wolves. Um, it's mentioned in a in the most recent prologue chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, the prologue of A, a Dance with Dragons from 2011, believe it or not, still the most recent book as of this recording, uh, that Jon Snow is better at this than he realizes, that he is a more powerful warg than even he uh, understands. And this is from the perspective of a wildling warg who would know, who would sense that from him. So it's definitely something that is explored a little bit more in the book that's being set up in the books as possibly a big deal for later on. Um, but as we saw in season six, you know, Rickon's going to return after a several seasons absence and just get shot in the chest for, you know, all of his troubles. Uh, so a lot of build up for nothing with Rickon Stark. Uh, this is just like the first most interesting thing that's happened with that character. And unfortunately, the show will really never do much of anything with it. I also think that it's great that I feel like that the Bran Rickon relationship is not unlike the Michael Scott and Toby relationship that Bran seems to really uh, not care for Rickon every time he shows up. He's like, oh, my God, Rickon, come on, come on. What are you doing in here? Yeah, but I feel like um, like Toby tends to weather it, right? Like he tends to kind of shock absorb it, and he's certainly a nuisance. Uh, but I don't feel like does he really throw it back at Michael Scott very often? Mm, not too often. He absorbs I feel like Rickon's it. pretty sassy himself. Like if you think back to when Rickon was like, "Dad's not coming home," and Brand's like, "Yeah, he is." Rickon, he's like, "He's definitely not," and he just <laughs> laughed. Like I feel like he's, like, like he's got a little Miri Mazdor in him. He's got a little bit of MMD. Yeah, I, I think do he think. is coming home. You'll see. <laughs> no, you're wrong. <laughs> no, he's not, Mary. Trust me. Yeah. I'll okay. Be back. <laughs> uh, Tomorrow. <laughs> You know, you know, you know, with Rickon Stark uh, in the books, one of the big theories is that he is on an island in the north called Skagos. I might be mispronouncing it that has potentially unicorns on the island and is also populated by uh, by indigenous cannibals. And he's mm. being protected there by Osha, the wildling. And so there's a lot of hope that Rickon will return in the books with an army of cannibals and potentially even unicorns at his side. Okay, well, let's not hold out too much hope for that. I don't think that's happening in season eight. I, I don't mean, think so. Zombie uh, Rickon with unicorns, I don't think is happening. All right, uh, l we touched a little bit on Tywin and that uh, that he is making all of these plans. He seems to recognize here for the first time that Tyrion is not a uh, stilted idiot and actually gives him some responsibility to go to King's Landing and serve as hand of the king in his stead while Tywin is going to be out there on the battlefront. Now, it seems as though that this is almost like an isolated incident that Tywin ends up uh, sort of like uh, losing whatever sort of respect for Tyrion uh, that he has here in this moment. Can you sort of just uh, talk us through the timeline of this? Why does he sour on Tyrion so much, even after Tyrion sets up everything at Blackwater? I think he just hates Tyrion. I think that he's he's really kind of always hated Tyrion. But he Tyrion. seems warm to him here. 
it's I don't think that I don't think it's really warmth so much as it's all hands on deck and you're Lannister. And when he's saying, you know, you're my son and that's why I'm sending you is because you're a Lannister in name. So we need to have a Lannister there. And, you know, I have to admit that you're clever and that you're smart and that you clearly want to do good. And I think by like telling him, like, you know, I'm proud of you, son, without saying those words, I think is kind of emotionally manipulative as well. Uh, I don't think that there's any love for from time when Lannister to Tyrion. I think that he, you know, he hates this guy all the way to the grave. Uh, you know, I think that that's that's always going to hold. And I think in terms of why he's going to sour on him again in the future, I think that they're going to have policy disagreements. And I think that, you know, he's going to keep Tyrion at his side in a different role for, you know, a while. I think that Tyrion becomes master of coin, if I'm remembering that right, once Tywin comes back from the Battle of Blackwater. And their victory at the Battle of Blackwater is so decisive against um, Stannis Baratheon and his side of the army that I think Tywin doesn't have to worry about being an active combatant and, like, being a strategist on the battlefield. And he can retake his role as Hand of the King moving forward. But is it fair to say that this is the warmest moment between them here in this episode? I mean, Tywin even pours a glass of wine for Tyrion, where in the previous episode, he pulled the pitcher of wine away from Tyrion. It's hard to remember a moment that is warmer than this between the two of them. Um, I, nothing comes to mind immediately in terms of like a real moment of fondness. But I would stop short of saying this is a fond moment between the two of them, too. Yeah. Tyrion asks Tywin, why me? Why make me be the hand of the king? You know, why not uh, my uncle? Uh, Why not somebody else? And he says to him, because you're my son. You're my son. Yes. Yeah. And his other son is currently uh, tied to a pole where he will be for way too long. Uh, So he needs somebody. He needs a Lannister to show up and he doesn't trust Cersei. That's important, I think, is like his um, his underestimating of Cersei and his, uh, you know, kind of just like casual neglect of her capabilities, as we're going to see later on in the show, just how capable she is. So I think that that's kind of fun. But I think, yeah, I think that that's really it. I think that Tywin needs. Lannister there. He's got to be on the battlefield. Tyrion even says, I'm new to strategy, uh, mm-hmm. but he's proved himself to be pretty canny uh, already in just his recent interactions with the, with the clans, uh, with the mountain clans uh, that I think Tywin has been able to see. Um, so I think that he's willing to give a shot here. And the situation is so bad. It's gotten so bad in Westeros and it's such a disaster at court that Tywin needs somebody that like he can trust to some degree. And those options are fairly slim. And I think that Tywin uh, choosing Tyrion, I think he's choosing reluctantly the best option that he's got right now. I think that he's just leaning on his son's loyalty to his house and the fact that he's actually intelligent and just, you know, kind of like crossing your fingers and hoping for the best from there. But his one rule was no whores at court. And Tyrion uh, tries to tell Shay about this, but then he blatantly disobeys Tywin. You wonder maybe if the whole Tyrion-Tywin situation might have gone a slightly different direction had he just listened to him on this one issue. 
Yeah, I'm so curious about um, about Shay and Tywin getting together and how that happens exactly. Uh, and I was I was trying to think. So because because Tywin says to Tyrion here, you will not take that whore to court uh, very specifically about Shay. And we know that Tywin and Shay are going to have been in bed together shortly before both of their deaths at Tyrion's hands later on in the show. And Shay being at this war camp predates Tyrion meeting Shay. Did Tywin and Shay have a thing going this far back? Is it impossible that Tywin and Shay have been, I don't know, in cahoots, if you want to call it that? I don't mean like that they've been planning something behind anyone's backs. I think that maybe they've been in bed together for a little while longer than we realized. Do you think that that's possible? I don't think so. I feel like that it was always in my mind that it was Shay being the instigator and wanting to get back at Tyrion after he was trying to get rid of her. But maybe there's somebody out there who has a better knowledge of the timeline of how that all happened. But if she doesn't show up, I mean, I think Tywin's probably probably still toast. Like, I feel like, you know, Shay survives. It's a much better outcome for Shay if she doesn't come with, with Tyrion. But Tyrion's still going to get, you know, the, the murder of Joffrey is still going to get pinned on Tyrion. And he is going to get thrown into a prison cell and he's going to be released from the prison cell. And then he is going to go and kill his dad no matter what. So Tywin, he, he bought this ticket a long time ago. You don't think that he, that this doesn't change something that Tywin doesn't feel like that he needs to uh, completely uh, disavow Tyrion and then Tyrion uh, seeing Tywin with Shay, you don't feel like that that was part of the motivation for doing what he does? I think it makes it more violent, but I think that it's happening anyway. And I, I know like the butterfly effect and everything, but I, I don't know that I don't know that Shay staying behind and not coming to King's Landing is enough to really impact the sort of you know predetermined future that seems to be in play here of Tyrion getting pinned for the murder of Joffrey and then killing his father once he's free. Like I feel like that's happening with or without Shay. I got to talk about something else uh, that was happening back in King's Landing. We see a very uh, extended sequence with Pycelle, who is uh, talking to Roz, the yes. uh, hardest working woman in Westeros. And yes. uh, Roz is, uh, is uh, you know, doing some maintenance, uh, cleaning up a bit. And uh, we see Pycelle doing this whole this whole speech about, you know, the thing about King's is and he never gets to his point but josh we end up seeing for the only time in my recollection in all of game of thrones before pycelle meets his untimely demise as part of the being in uh the sept when the wildfire goes kablooey he appears to be not what he is uh putting out into the world in terms of that he appears to have a lot more vigor than this person who is like this decrepit old guy walking right. around he like hurley is spry despite appearances to the contrary yeah i think I, I love this scene i think this scene is hilarious uh i'd kind of forgotten about it because you're right it's not really important um you know pycelle makes it really far on this show even though he's not tremendously important in the grand scheme of things i can't remember a time where this really comes back into play one scene that comes to mind that i'm really eager to check out again is um coming up next season when 
Tyrion is going to have like that great one, two, three situation with uh, Varys, Littlefinger, and Pycelle to like figure out who is the mole, who's talking to Cersei, and he's going to figure out that it's Pycelle, and him and Bronn are going to intimidate him, and I think like there's going to be some uh, at least threats to the beard, if not outright removal of the beard or pieces of beard. And I wonder how spry he'll be in that moment. Um, but what I love about this, even if it doesn't ultimately matter too much, is that this is another moment where, you know, you're realizing just how many people are playing characters on this show. Uh, and like Varys and Littlefinger are going to have a discussion about that in the very next scene about how they're just playing their parts. They are both in like mutual admiration and respect of each other's skill sets and ambitions and their abilities to be how, you know, where they are based on where they're coming from. Um, and we all have a role to play and everything like that. And Pycelle is just another example of that, of here's another guy who has his own game that he's running and what a kind of genius game he's running where he is developing this reputation as kind of like this blowhard this old blowhard who is just like you know uh, he's just like you know gimping around and you know husky breathing and just looks really belabored but in private like he's like you know he's like a 70 year old man going on like 49 like Mm -hmm. he's you know He's doing pretty well. You know, Julian Glover is the name of the actor who plays Grand Maester Pycelle, uh, who is uh, he is famous for his role in um, in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You remember him from that? Yeah. Is he the guy who is working with the Nazis? Yeah, he's Donovan. He's the bad guy. Uh, and in in, uh, in Indiana Jones, he he drinks uh, from the cup that he believes to, to be the Holy Grail. The Carpenter's and- Cup. And he, 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 no, he drinks from the wrong one. He drinks from the bejeweled cup and he, cho- he chooses poorly and he gets obliterated and turned into a, a skeletal monster man. And then, you know, just ash after that. But I feel like maybe in this alternate timeline, he drank from the right cup. Like mm-hmm. he's very youthful. He's looking really, really good. This Pycelle. Well, he's youthful. I don't know if he's looking really, really good. I just wish that there would have been some payoff to this. It was such a cool reveal back when I first watched this episode. Like, oh, what's going to happen with this? Well, nothing. It'll just be a red herring and it, nothing will ever uh, really, you know, uh, amount of this. So what would have been the thing to do? What would have been like the best move here? Like what is the payoff for Grand Maester Pycelle to be like such a such a like a, an athletic, a secret athlete? Does he win a joust? Does he win a tourney? Does he put on well, Grand Maester Pycelle's like <laughs> DJ classics? Like it, how does it play it out? It would have been great if at some point he is able to reveal himself and there was like some utility to him uh, sort of like misrepresenting himself and putting on his mask. But alas, uh, that will not be the only small council member that I will have this regret about because we also have another great scene with Varys and Littlefinger. And here's Littlefinger again staring at the Iron Throne talking Talking about what he'll do with Varys at the point that he gets the opportunity to sit on the Iron Throne. And I really feel like that these, you know, sort of grand plans that Littlefinger is talking about also really never come to fruition. 
Yeah, I know. Uh, so, you know, this has been something that we have been monitoring on our rewatch of Game of Thrones because the death of Littlefinger is still so fresh for you and I having just finished season seven uh, not terribly long ago. And for many of the people who are listening to this in real time as well, uh, what is I mean, maybe this is something that's better saved for our show next week. But I'm, I am really curious about your takeaways from Littlefinger so far. It's hard not to be kind of disappointed when you weigh how he starts the show with where he ends up yeah there's just these great scenes with Varys and Littlefinger and for them to never really have like a proper ending to their story together just feels like a missed opportunity yeah, I do. I do regret that. I do think that that is something that the show I, w- I wish like if they could get, you know, if they could get a dragon from Dragonstone to beyond the wall in five minutes. Like I wish that they could have found some way for Varys to make it to Winterfell while Littlefinger is there or for Littlefinger to have gone as an envoy with Jon Snow in Davos could have been fun. And he could have had one final scene with Varys at Dragonstone where he could have been like, oh, I just wanted to see you here at Dragonstone. Yeah. and say what's up what's going on let's trade notes and how things Varys tip off Arya to what could potentially be going on and yeah, just to have yeah. him sort of at least in there and, and like uh, you know be able to shoot Littlefinger at glance as Littlefinger is dying there at Winterfell just like even this conversation between the two of them where they're talking about like here we stand in mutual admiration for one another they were just like set up from this first season as this uh, Professor X magneto pair that were always going to be you know playing this chess match against each other and then ultimately it doesn't go anywhere yeah it would have been nice to have to have gone somewhere (laughs) (laughs) a regret a regret regret, and hopefully you know there's still some hope that maybe it turns out differently uh in the books if we ever get a chance to uh see that Uh, right right peter peter baelish never runs into varus again but patire baelish on the other hand perhaps he has a chance We'll see. Josh, uh, what other notes do you have from this episode? Uh, well, I love that Hot Pie is officially on the show. Uh, I forgot. Kind I of forgot a jerky to, Hot Pie yeah, to start. I forgot that, like, you know, he was a really he was a really mean kid. Apparently, he kicked a boy to death through the balls. Allegedly. I don't believe Allegedly. it. I feel like, yeah. I think he was hard. fronting. Hard to imagine that that is true. Also, what's up? Lamy Greenhands is in the house. He's going to be here for like five seconds. Uh, his death scene early on in season two. Uh, in retrospect, no, I was not going to be an iconic image, but it's a great it's a great ending to, a, to an early season two episode. So I like this storyline that's building up. Uh, I love Yorin. I'm treasuring every moment we've got with Yorin while we have him because he's going to be gone very, very soon. Unfortunately, uh, just love that guy. Big fan of the Yorin. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um also stop stop laughing. <laughs> uh Jorah gets a kiss from Danny. Jorah does get a kiss from Danny. That is uh that's a big deal. We know how Jorah feels about Daenerys here. Um yeah, no, I think the the whole the whole just, you know, watching uh watching the the scene with Danny emerging with the dragons again and seeing them in their first state, you know, if we're not counting them as eggs, which is, you know, the less exciting version of where we are now that the dragons have been birthed and are in the world. But just like to think about where we are 
are on Game of Thrones now with the dragons versus how it started with them. It's such a shift. It's just it's so wild that like we're going to be in the era of baby dragons for a while on this rewatch uh, before we get to like the full sized flying, you know, flying cannons that we are used to uh, through seven seasons of Game of Thrones. It's pretty crazy. I have to say I was also a little disturbed by naked Lancel. <laughs> Yeah, Naked Lancel is definitely a thing. Yeah, Eugene Simon, the actor who plays uh, Lancel Lannister, is going to go on to at least, I don't know, I feel like he's going to get pretty jacked, right? Like, I remember Lancel in, like, his final stage of, you know, as a faith militant, like, being pretty cut and, you know, pretty lanky Lancel. (laughs) Lanky Lancel is the thing. (laughs) I'm not trying to, like, you know, shame anybody, but uh, it's definitely noticeable. (laughs) Are you thin shaming? I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Uh, but I am one of. Uh, I, I did take. Uh, it, it, it wounded me. Arya's stance on uh, on fat boys. Uh, I was like, ah, oh, you wound me. You wound me, Harry Potter. <laughs> Uh, what else did I like from this episode? I like uh, I like that Lord Commander Mormont gives yes. this rousing speech of what we're going to do when we go north of the wall. We're not just going to sit here and wait and just like find out what's happening. We're going to go out there and we're going to bust this thing wide open. We're going to find Benjamin Stark alive <laughs> or dead. Like, he's just like making all of these huge lofty <laughs> promises that are going to fall completely flat yeah. that are just never going to be answered. Uh, also very sad that Lord Commander Mormont is setting north um, for the uh, for the last time. He is leaving Castle Black here in this season finale and he will never return. Uh, and it just makes me think about how much like that poor lonely bed at night. You know, those guys seem to have a real bond. Uh, Lord Commander Mormont and his crisp, clean sheets. Uh, they shall never meet again. Yeah, and not only does Lord Commander Mormont also need his sheets changed every night, he yeah, has the yeah. audacity to complain about ham again this morning. <laughs> ham is great, Lord Commander Mormont. I love Lord Commander Mormont as the one percenter at the Night's Watch. I think it's just spectacular. <laughs> I have to have ham again. At least get me a beer. Oh, oh yeah. What a, what a hard life you live, Lord Commander Mormont. What too a, much ham. Too much ham. Very too first world ham. problem. God. What did you think of, like, this episode is also kind of the first, like, episode of, like, Sansa Unchained, right? Like, this is, you know, Sansa whose fairy tale dreams have been completely destroyed by the death of her father, and she stops short of pushing Joffrey off of the bridge, but only because of the Hound interfering. But, like, Sansa is already, like, in stone-cold killer Sansa mode one episode after, like, her whole, like, princess aspirations are completely destroyed. Uh, you know, I've always been on the Sansa train, but it was it was a, a nice reminder that, like, even in this in this season one finale, like we're on the road to just like hardcore Sansa right away, which is like Sansa the badass is just a thing that's already happening. Yeah, I like when Joffrey is telling her to look and she's like, how long do I have to look for? And yeah. Joffrey says, uh, as long as I say. And so then, then yeah, and it was also uh, I, I really uh, end up feeling a lot better about the uh, the death of Meryn Trant, uh, especially after he ends up slapping Sansa around in this episode when uh, Joffrey says about how, you know, a king should never slap his lady. So I'll have Meryn Trant do it for me. What a jerk. He's the worst. I'm so thrilled that we so have Joffrey Meryn. on. 
Yeah. I'm, I love that we have Joffrey on the podcast for a while, but he just sucks. He's just awful. He's the worst. Yeah, worst no, guy. he's really terrible. He's really he's, terrible. I mean, he's not a John, but he would be the worst John for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Josh, anything else? I'm sure. I'm sure that there is uh, something big that I'm neglecting right now, but that's why we got we got one more shot at season one before we have to get out of here. Uh, so we'll we'll talk more about this episode if we need to in our feedback episode, our season one wrap up episode, which I'm really stoked about. Should be fun to hear from all of you guys who've been doing the rewatch along with us. Uh, Rob, you and I saw each other in person not terribly long ago at the live know it alls in New York City last week, and I don't know about you but i met a lot of people who are listening to the game of thrones rewatch podcast people seem to be enjoying it thank you guys so much for following along and having a blast with us i think this has been great it's been highly enjoyable so i can't wait to hear from some of you guys next week i think it's gonna be a really fun show just like great john it's been very great to go through all of the things from season one you can send your questions in so many different ways uh gotpostshowrecaps.com you know the drill that you can go back and listen to all the different ways we rattled off earlier in the podcast if necessary josh what is the hashtag tonight is it lanky lancel is it weekend at drogo's yeah i mean we've got like an early contender and a late contender uh i feel like you could give us either one of those and i would be happy okay all right i I don't know i I don't want to say i'd be happy with uh, lanky lancel but (laughs) i'll live i'll live i'll live just like call drogo's living all right of course you can subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any of it we always appreciate your feedback and stark ratings at postshowrecaps.com slash g-o-t itunes check out everything else that we have going on at postshowrecaps.com uh mr robot we just wrapped up talking about star trek discovery all of the walking dead and more postshowrecaps.com for all of that take care everybody have a good one bye bye